Hello and welcome to the Faber Podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guests this month are quintessential New York novelist Paul Oster and, a little later in the programme, Nadim Aslam, whose new novel, The Wasted Vigil, tackles the brutal realities of Afghanistan's recent history. Afghanistan, as I say at some point in the novel early on, is that has always been a crossroads of history. So that was where, in 1979 and in the 80s, and then in the 90s, these various nations came together. And uh, as Marcus says at one point, everyone made mistakes in this place. We begin this month with Paul Oster, author of the New York trilogy, The Brooklyn Follies, and many other titles. When Paul was in London recently, he spoke to me about his most recent novel, Man in the Dark. In the book, retired literary critic August Prill, recovering from a serious road accident, spends a long dark night reflecting on his past and inventing stories to keep his ghosts at bay. Oster has said elsewhere that he wrote this book in a kind of frenzy. I asked him first where he thought that frenzy had come from. It's, it's very difficult to know, but I, I had the unusual experience for me of always seeming to know what the next word was going to be. So the book almost wrote itself, as they say. I, I, I felt as if I were the scribe. I had somehow slipped into Brill's skin, my protagonist, to such a degree that it was as if he were talking through me. And your other protagonist, Owen Brick, did he, did he, did he come fully formed, as it were, in the same way as, as Brill, or did he take more excavation? The situation came to me simultaneously, these, these two stories, the story and then the story within the story. I knew he was going to start in a hole in the ground, but at first I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen to him. And little by little, I, I, I figured it out. You've got three generations of one family in a house at night time, the, the narrator, August Brill, and his daughter and his granddaughter. And in their way, they're all, I suppose, they're all constructors of narratives. He has been a critic. He's now attempted to write his memoir and that has stalled. And he has these sort of night, night thoughts which he doesn't write down. His daughter is also a writer. She's a, a biographer, but she's having difficulty constructing this narrative. And then you've got the third generation, the granddaughter, who's interested in film and she's studying film, but she's also, you know, not kind of committing, not going the whole way. And I wondered if that... How deliberate that was to put those those three people in a in a similar but different sort of predicament in that in that one house. The two main characters really are Brill and the granddaughter Katya. Miriam, the daughter, is important, but there's a lot less about her situation than Katya's, because Katya is in real trouble. I mean, her former boyfriend has been murdered in Iraq. She's suffering terribly. She's watching movies every day as a form of evasion. Uh, She's flooding her head with certain images so she won't have to think about the images of the murder of Titus, the boyfriend, which they've seen on on a video. In the same way, I think Brill is lying awake, insomniac, not wanting to think about certain things in his life and therefore evading them by inventing stories. Because it does seem to me, in the times when I've had those sleepless nights, I think we've all been through them, your thoughts tend to turn to dark subjects in the dark. 
you catalog your regrets. You go over the, the, the mistakes you've made in life, the times you've treated people badly, and generally just confronting the futility of your own existence. And uh, Brill is grieving his wife, who's been dead for a little more than a year. He's thinking about Titus. He's thinking about Katya. And it's, it's, it is finally a, a dark night of the soul. He, he begins the brick story, the man in the hole, throws him into an imaginary civil war in the United States. But I, I look at that story not so much as a political commentary on what's going on in the United States, although it is, but also as a representation of Brill's inner state, what he's feeling. It's, a, it's an emblem of his emotions. His thoughts are turning around and around on the subject of war because of Titus's death. But he makes a mistake, and it's all because of this state of mind that he's in. Little by little, he begins to implicate himself in his own story. He sets up a situation that's impossible. It's almost as if he checkmates himself, and he can't really think of a way to resolve it, and he ends the story quite brutally. But this brutality is an echo of what happened to Titus, you see. So it's, it's working on several levels at the same time. And this, the story, as you say, that he has set in motion really can only be fulfilled with a death, can't it? The, 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 he's, it's either suicide or it's murder. Those are really the only two options that Brill is the creator, as the creator of the story has opened to him. Exactly right. And, and it seems to me, by implicating himself in the story, one senses a, a secret death wish on his part. But he can't kill himself in his own story. It's just simply not possible. <laughs> so, so, so Brick is the one who has to go. I wanted to ask you a bit about the politics because it, it's clear that there were things going on in the United States at the time when you were writing this which irked you sufficiently to, to imagine this dystopian future or, or parallel situation where the United States was, was split asunder. Well, I think the inspiration for this was the 2000 election, which was an outrage to me. And I, I felt so frustrated and disgusted and angry and depressed about what happened. Because Al Gore won the election. He was voted president of the United States. And through political and legal maneuverings, the Republicans stole it from him. And I've had this eerie sense in the last eight years that we hopped off the tracks of reality. We've been living in a parallel world. The world we asked for is one in which Al Gore is now finishing his second term. The US never invaded Iraq and possibly 9-11 never happened either. And so I think this sense of living in, the, in, a, in a real, unreal world inspired me to make this story and tell it through through Brill. Because in a sense, his story is of course an exaggeration. I'm not predicting a real civil war in the United States. But I do think we are in a civil war of a kind, not with bombs or bullets, but with words and ideas. And the country is very divided. And the two halves 
are not able to speak to each other anymore. There's no common language. There's no discourse available anymore. If 40-something percent of Americans believe that the world was created in six days, how can I really have a reasonable conversation with any of those people? Because their minds are made up, and they're religious fanatics, and they feel they own the truth. And once you feel you own the truth, you don't want to discuss anything with anybody else. Someone who holds an opposing view is anathema. And there are many such issues that divide us. It's a, it's a sad situation. As, as I watch, as we speak now, we're in the midst of the economic crisis around the world. Maybe, maybe something will, good will come of this in that if things get really bad, maybe some of these cultural issues will start diminishing in importance. Because I think when you're uh, really worried about where your next meal is coming from and whether you're going to be able to go on living in your house, I don't know if you're worrying too much about whether the world was created in six days or six billion years. It seemed to me that something that, that the reviewers hadn't really touched on a great deal, the ones that I had read, was the formative nature of Brill's experience in the 1960s when he sees riots in Newark, New Jersey. And it seemed to me that that, in a way, was something which had lodged very deep in his consciousness. And in some ways, his dystopian thoughts had some seeds in, in those events. I mean, am I, am I reading that right? Yeah, I think you're right. And I'll make a confession here that that episode in the book is the only bit of autobiographical material. I've transposed things. Brill is older than I am. He has an older sister. But that older sister is loosely based on my own mother, and who was married to my stepfather, who was the Corporation Council of Newark. And, and what Brill describes, going to dinner with them in Manhattan, hearing the police calls on the radio, driving straight into Newark, seeing the riots in the streets, going to the mayor's office in City Hall, seeing the mayor, Hugh Adonisio, crying at his desk, going down to the jail, seeing all the beaten men in the cells. All that comes directly from my own experience. I've been walking around with that night in my head for, well, 41 years now. It was a startling thing to see. Absolutely horrible. Brill seemed to me to to be unable to kind of accomplish narratives. He wasn't able to accomplish his his memoir. He aborts the story of of Brick uh, quite quite violently and abruptly. Therefore, the, the the closing scene of the book has or had for me a greater sense of of resolution and completeness because instead of writing it down or executing it only in his imagination, he's in dialogue with his granddaughter. I know that some critics have sort of said, well, this, this seems rather artificial to have the grandfather and the granddaughter lying side by side in the dark. But it, but I, I, it worked for me. I, I, I felt that the, the, the way that she was kind of teasing out these thoughts and he was going back through his past really gave the book a sense of completeness. And I wanted to ask you to say a bit about how you how you handled that that scene, because clearly a lot of the, the, the book, I suppose, stands or falls on, on, on bringing that, that scene off. Well, for me, this is um, the thing that the entire book has been leading up to in one way or another. I, I, I see it as a kind of musical composition, this narrative. 
themes are sounded and then dropped, other themes are sounded, then dropped, the first theme comes back. It's weaving in and out as, as if it were a fugue. And then it, it takes a very sharp turn. And I think it was, you know, it's a risky thing to do, but it seemed correct to me that suddenly Katya comes downstairs. She's been awake herself upstairs in her bedroom. And she's heard uh, her grandfather coughing and he's dropped something on the floor, so she, she presumes he's awake. And um, she comes in and they start to talk. That's when the novel finds its footing, I think, because it is, in the end, a book about intimate matters, family matters, marriages, children. And Sonia, Brill's wife, is dead and Kachi wants to know about their marriage and he, he opens up to her and talks. To me, the earlier parts of the book build up to this in a, in a subtle way. The discussions of films, they, they're watching films and they talk about the films. But each one of those stories is a very intimate family story. And so the groundwork is being laid for, for what, what we get with the, with the Brills this conversation is absolutely crucial. And it also, of course, brings to the forefront the death of Titus, which has been referred to throughout, but there in the, in the closing pages you actually hear what happened and what led him to go to, to Iraq. The, the funny thing is, you know about Titus's death in the, I think it's the second or third paragraph of the book, and very interestingly, my American editor, who happens to be British, Francis Cody, said the interesting thing about that is that you know it and then you forget it because you get immersed in the other things that the book is talking about. And so when you finally do confront the Titus business later, it comes like a slap in the face. What happened to Titus is the germ of the entire book. It's the seed, it's the core around which everything else revolves. And I had to wait until very close to the end of the book because um, to, to, to really discuss it directly because that's what the book is all about. And it's a book which in some ways is saturated in, in grief and separation and loss. And yet in that closing scene, it seemed to me there is the possibility of reconciliation and coming to terms with with who you are and what you've done, and it's not perfect, and you may not have made complete amends, but there is some some way in which you can come to terms. No, I, I agree. I agree. I think the, the feeling, Brill's feeling of love for the two, Miriam and Katya, is, is, is what's keeping him alive. And uh, they all need one another. The three are very much dependent on the presence, each one of the other two. Because there's that moment, uh, see, Brill is living in the house in Vermont because of a car accident he had, and his leg was very badly hurt. And his daughter asked him to live with her. And he said, I don't want to be a burden to you. I, 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 you have enough problems as it is. And she said, no, no, you don't understand. I need you there. I need someone with me. I'm so lonely in that house. She's been divorced and she's living on her own. And so she needs her father back. 
he needs his daughter. His daughter literally resurrected him. He thinks to himself, if Miriam hadn't taken me in, I'd probably be dead now. And, uh, and in the same way, he needs to care about Katya. He needs to, the effort of trying to get her out of her deep funk is, is, is finally a healing thing for Brill. Because when you start caring about other people more than yourself, then you, you, you forget your own problems and you become a real human being again. I was talking to Paul Oster, whose novel, Man in the Dark, is available now. My second guest today is Pakistan-born novelist Nadim Aslam, whose previous book, Maps for Lost Lovers, looked at the immigrant experience in the UK. His new book, The Wasted Vigil, is set in present-day Afghanistan, in the house of an English doctor, Marcus Caldwell, who lives in the shadow of the Tora Bora Mountains in an old perfume factory. Marcus's story, and those of the other characters whose lives intersect with his, a Russian woman seeking her lost brother, a former CIA man, a young Muslim fundamentalist, allow Aslam to put a human face on the brutal history of modern Afghanistan. I asked Nadim what had drawn him to this subject in the first place. Afghanistan and the tragedy of Afghanistan is linked very tightly to my own life. I was in Pakistan in 1979, the place where I was born. I was there when the Soviets marched into Afghanistan. And it was a big crisis in that area. Soon after the Russians came, the United States government decided that they would use Pakistan and they would use the Afghan resistance, the Mujahideen, to counter the Soviet force. There were any number of writers, journalists, poets, and ordinary human beings in Pakistan who warned against the dangers of pouring billions of dollars of worth, worth of weapons and, and pouring billions of dollars worth of money into Afghanistan. Because once the Soviets are gone, are gone, what would happen? So things were made difficult for members of my family, and that's when we left Pakistan. So Afghanistan is very deeply linked with the fact that I live in London, that I live in England, that, that we came here. People like my father warned against the danger. And when in 1989 the Soviets left, the dangers that people had warned of became uh, apparent, certainly for the Afghanistani people. The civil war began almost immediately. These warlords uh, that I mentioned in my book, they, they began tearing each other to pieces using those very smart, shining weapons which the West and Saudi Arabia had pumped into that area. So thousands of people were dying every month. There were hundreds of thousands of war orphans. There were millions of refugees already in Pakistan and Iran. So... The consequences were there for the Afghanis immediately, but it took until 2001, September 2001, for the consequences to uh, become apparent for the rest of the world. And in this book, I wanted to explore the question, is it possible for a superpower to go into another land and play its geopolitical game, use another poor country as a proxy? and then withdraw and expect there not to be any consequences. 
So when I look at my notebooks, I can actually trace the uh, destruction of Afghanistan, mm. the the emergence of Taliban, the 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 appearance of Al Qaeda, the, the very first statements that uh, Osama bin Laden put out from Kandahar, the very first um, terrorist attacks which were carried out on Western targets. In a sense, you bring together, I suppose, a microcosm of mm. Afghanistan's recent past because you've got mm. an English doctor who's got a, a deceased Afghan wife. You've got an American who's been involved in the CIA. You've got the Russian sister of, uh, a, of a fighter, who, a Soviet fighter. And then you bring in two other uh, main characters, a, a, a Muslim, fen- an Afghan fundamentalist and a, a young woman who's a teacher. So I wondered how that how that microcosm kind of took shape that, that, that forms a sort of imaginative core of the book. Afghanistan, as I say at some point in the novel early on, is that has always been a crossroads of history. So that was where in 1979 and in the 80s and then in the 90s, these various nations came together. And uh, as Marcus says at one point, everyone made mistakes in this place. So I just wanted to explore those countries' involvements uh, as to whether it was hard or not trying to imagine a 42-year-old Russian woman or a man or an American man in his late 50s. I am not those things. But this is what writers do. You imagine yourselves into the skin of someone else. So how did I begin imagining someone like David or someone like Marcus? I always think that if you blindfolded me and you blindfolded a Spanish person or a Russian person and you fed both of us strawberries, we would know that they were strawberries. So there are certain basic things which we all, every single one of us on the planet has in common. The way we fall in love, what it means when we say mother, the feeling that 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 is generated inside you by that word and the feeling that is generated inside you by the word son by the word child the word flower butterfly so based some things are true beyond that there are social political economic circumstances into which each one of us is dropped at oh. birth but they can be learned oh. they can you can go and find out about russian history one one approaches these things from a position of great humbleness. And of course, you you can make mistakes. But I think if you try to do these, but if you're trying to do these things honestly, with a certain amount of, well, not not a certain amount, but as much integrity as you can, as you can muster, then then there is honor in that failure. You mentioned the things that we all have in common, the taste of a strawberry and the experience of love. And then the things which are which are overlaid, which are learnt, which are cultural, which are not intrinsic. And in the book, toward, towards the end of the book, Lara says to David, we are most alone when we are with the myths. Yes. And it seemed to me that that was a very telling remark that shed a lot of light on many things in the book because there are characters who have lived by communist myths or American capitalist expansionist myths or... Islamic fundamentalist myths. A lot, a lot of the the tensions in the book come from yeah. from those conflicting. Yeah. They they may be big systems, or they may be individuals' own personal yeah. worldviews, or their distortions of a 
of a, of a system. Mm. And that, that seemed to me to be a, a, a source of the action and the, the, the tensions in the, in the book. Yes, that is the idea. And uh, of course, um, myths that we take in or myths that are given to us by the culture that we live in, myths, politics, and uh, what have you, there are some parts of the planet where you can live an honorable, perhaps, even a decent life if you don't, if you choose that you you do not wish to pay any attention to the politics of that country. It is possible to, to ignore it and live a full life. I mean, and I'm talking about the West here, you know. The, but in countries like Pakistan, in countries like Afghanistan and the majority of the third world, politics is a physical thing. It is not boring old words. I was teaching in Washington, D.C. earlier in the year. And I would go for walks around the Capitol building and or around the White House. And I would think how decisions made in that place back in the 80s, how those decisions which the American people were not very much aware of or if they were aware of, they they did not impinge on them that greatly. But those those boring words traveled halfway across the world to Pakistan and there they became hammers and fists which broke the bodies of journalists and uh, writers and poets who were protesting against the regime which was being supported by America and the West so and Saudi Arabia. So, you know, for, for some of us, we don't have the luxury to be able to turn our eye away from politics. You could have made a documentary, you could have made a, a, a work of reportage, but writing a novel about this allows you to get into the heads of characters whose heads it's otherwise very difficult to, mm-hmm. to get into. The book is called The Wasted Vigil, and the word vigil or its derivatives, vigilant or vigilante, occurs seven times in the novel. And each time it is linked to one of the main characters. For example, with Casa, Casa says that when he arrives at the house and he sees that the house is full of unbelievers, they are, they are not Muslims, even though Marcus has converted to Islam, but he's still wary of him because it's an Englishman. So he says that he should be vigilant against these people in case they infect him with their disbelief, with their unfaith, as it were. But the moment he enters the house and sits down and has a cup of tea and he's around in the kitchen where the walls are painted with images and after he finishes that cup and he leaves, the way he looks at the world is now different. The language in which I describe what he sees is slightly richer than it was before because he's been around art. Infection has happened. His vigil has been wasted. As it were, it doesn't matter how how hard he tries. In the same way, there's a special forces soldier in the novel, James Ballantyne. He uses the word that we have to be vigilant against these people. But of course, tragedy happens at the end for him as well. So, um, yes, um, it was wonderful to uh, um, bring all these people together and, and to see how long it would take for them to move away from the common humanity, as it were. And then for the layer upon layer of the 
um, myths and histories that also are what we are, um, that also go mm. to make what we are. Mm. Uh, how long it would take for them to surface? Mm. You you just you compare Marcus to Prospero, and it seemed to me that wasn't a casual comparison. In some ways, Prospero cell where there are these encounters and people shipwrecked metaphorically. Um, well, to what extent was that in the back of your mind as, as something as you were writing? Absolutely, I was um, I was thinking of uh, Prospero, and uh, I was thinking of Shakespeare a lot um, all the way through through the novel. In the um, at the end, when we have the Roger sequence. I was thinking of the blinding of Gloucester in King Lear, in that you could make a case where you could say that his conduct had been that of a traitor, in that England was under attack by France and he had sided with the, the French. So you could say that the sisters were right in thinking that he needs to be punished for being a traitor. But the, but the punishment that, that he's blinded is so inappropriate and so horrific that we immediately lose sympathy with the, the people who are punishing him. Even if they, they are right in thinking that he needs to be punished. But the punishment is so bizarre and so, art, so, so cruel and barbaric that you think, no, you want to step away from it. So that is, and that I was thinking of not only in terms of how I make Casa, who of course is a suicide bomber um, who is waiting to carry out a suicide mission, and also to the American presence in Afghanistan. So it doesn't matter what the West did to the Islamic lands. It doesn't matter how America treated the Muslims. Flying those planes into those office buildings is so horrific and barbaric that we think we are not with you. I don't care, mm. even if America was in the wrong. I don't care. And secondly, when you look at what's happening in Guantanamo Bay and the, the footage in, in Abu Ghraib and, and what have you, again, you think, I don't care that your country was attacked and you went back and said, we need to make sure that this kind of thing that doesn't happen again, or we want revenge or whatever. I don't care how right you think you were, because this is wrong. I'm not with you. So that was the idea in the novel. I was talking to Nadim Aslam about The Wasted Vigil, which is available now. If you've enjoyed this programme, you'll find lots more author interviews and readings on the Faber website. And you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. For the moment, thank you for listening, and until next month, goodbye.